In 1978, at the New Brunswick campus of Rutgers University, archaeologist Dr. Joel Grossman received a phone call. It was Dr. Lorraine Williams, the state archaeologist. She called Dr. Grossman to warn him that a multi-million dollar construction project was about to plow through the buried remains of an 18th century village. The Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office was contacted uh, for a phase one study. That is, is there anything there or not? Now, so far, in the background, we have this development from the State Museum that thought that there could be something there. And she, in turn, Lorraine Williams, referred to the work of C.C. Vermeule of the 1930s, who said there was a settlement there of 57 houses and people up and down landing, landing lane between the river and river road, and that not a trace of it survived. And so my job was to find out whether or not anything survived at the landing. Dr. Joel Grossman had been an archaeologist since 1965. He received his Ph.D. as a Fulbright Special Career Fellow in Peruvian and North American Archaeology from the University of California at Berkeley. His accomplishments include major prehistoric and historic discoveries throughout North America, the Andes of Peru, the Brazilian Amazon, Costa Rica, and Puerto Rico. Dr. Grossman is internationally recognized as a pioneer in the planning and implementation of advanced applied technology solutions in archaeology. But one of his first major contributions to historical archaeology was in North America, specifically Middlesex County, New Jersey, in 1978, while he was head of Razo. Razo uh, stood for Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office and was set up at the Ag School at Cook College uh, at Rutgers University. Uh, and its origins probably a little bit little known. It came about at a request from the Division of Water Resources at the state level to Rutgers University uh, in about 75, 76. And that request was that they set up an archaeological capability to do environmental impact studies being required by federal and state agencies because they were going to build a bunch of dams throughout New Jersey. And they knew they needed large-scale survey and planning capabilities. So I was hired at Rutgers to develop a laboratory, which we call RASO, or Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office, to address the survey requirements of the state and the federal agencies working on big projects in New Jersey. This podcast is about a big project, one of Dr. Joel Grossman's big projects. He was one of the first, if not the first, to implement ground-penetrating radar at an archaeological site. He also used computers to record the excavated artifacts, a cell phone to communicate with his staff, and a bipod camera system to record the excavation. For this podcast, we interviewed investigators, historians, and archaeologists, and collected 15 hours of interviews. 
I'm Douglas Almack. This is Uncovering Raritan Landing. Department of Transportation dug up artifacts by the river. And the year before, there was nothing new about Raritan Landing. It's just a matter of how we were going to map it. Joel Grossman took it seriously, but he was t- taking it seriously technologically more than anything else. And thank goodness for doing that. Obviously, you know, looking for the primary documents is, is critical um, prior to digging. I mean, you always want to know what you're likely to find. And, you know, on a, on a historic site, you know, that's the best way to do it. You know, maps, uh, deeds, historical accounts, diaries. The research for Raritan Landing was conducted in a few different places. The primary important places was the Middlesex County Courthouse, because that is where deeds, surrogates records are held. And so that was a very important place. Another was uh, the Rutgers Special Collections at Alexander Library. The gram-penetrating radar is using this, these pulses of electromagnetic energy. It's, a, it's an active method. It's sending something out. The magnetometer that I'm using, is, it's a passive instrument. So that means it's just measuring the, the ambient uh, Earth's magnetic field. It can be difficult to locate Lenape artifacts, but um, I would say Native American sites are located uh, across the state, from, from Sussex County to Cape Cape May. The running joke when we were out in the field with the, in the Razzo days was, it's another Williamsburg. The construction project was a 25-mile sewer line, which cost over $100 million. This sewer line was being built underground in the township of Piscataway, located in Middlesex County, New Jersey. This sewer construction was supported by federal money, which meant it was eligible to be stopped if it was possible that historic structures or artifacts were going to be destroyed. Again, Dr. Grossman. For federally funded or licensed projects, there's a law called Section 106 106, and the National Environmental Policy Act, which protects archaeological sites uh, against destruction from federally supported or funded or licensed projects so that we're not going around cleaning up the water but destroying our history in the process. So I got involved with Rant Landing because there was a question about whether there was a buried settlement there. Dr. Grossman and the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office got to work. The first step was to identify if there was an 18th century town buried beneath the surface. The historian hired to research Raritan Landing was Richard Porter. I was initially, I was the researcher. There was nobody else doing it. Richard Porter came to work for the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office, or RAZO, when he audited a class at Rutgers. After the first class, I thought I should go up and introduce myself because at 23, I was older than everybody else in the class and perhaps was noticed uh, for that reason. And the woman was um, a eminent uh, South African historical archaeologist named Carmel Schreer. And I went up there, and she's got a, a very interesting personality. She, she's great, but it's, she's tough. So I went up there, and she said who I was and what I was doing, and she looked at me and said, you're wasting your time here. And she wrote down a phone number 
uh, and said, call these people. And when I called, it was the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office, and they happened to be uh, looking for someone to do historical research and writing. And so I went over for an interview, and they hired me. Rick was assigned to learn as much as he could about Raritan Landing. Background information. What they needed when I arrived, basically they needed to know the history of Raritan Landing. So it was uh, an easy assignment, at least as far as defining it. Uh, doing it, you know, took a little time to get going and know what I was doing. But it was to, you know, there were these numerous properties that were shown on, you know, some early maps and people, you know, there there was, of course, an awareness that Raritan Landing had existed. And so it was, we need to know what the story is, you know, what are the histories of these various properties that used to line Landing Lane. And so it was, okay, get out there, do titles, find out who were the owners. Um, uh, census is often a great thing, but probably did not help at this point because in Jersey, the first census is 1830. And, you know, really Raritan Landing by mid-19th century was gone or or on the way out. Uh, an- another source that was very important is tax rateable. So these are basically tax lists, and they tell you, they'll tell you, land ownership. They'll tell you, they will tax you if you have a tavern. They'll tax you if you have a mill. And so those things are listed in the, li- in the list and you can get information about, uh, about those people. They'll, they'll tax you as a merchant, which of course would have been important for a rare landing. So that's another source, uh, back to a question that you asked me before, but no, it was basic. It was, we need to know the history of these buildings and away I went. Anyone searching for the history of something, in this case Raritan Landing, is expected to examine primary documents. Secondary documents can be helpful as well, but it's the primary documents that unlock the secrets of the past. Primary sources, they're contemporary with what you're covering. So examples of primary sources are maps, which were created depicting a certain time period, and they were, de- they were created at that time. Another is deeds, which are recorded at the time of the transaction that they are representing. Another example would be census material, which is recorded during the year that the uh, guy is going out there and counting counting uh, households. So uh, you're dealing with stuff from the time period, and presumably it's accurate. I mean, you always have to be careful with any source to try and make sure that it's accurate, and that usually happens by double-checking things. Secondary sources, think about two different types of secondary sources. Some, let's say by professional historians who are rigorously researching using primary sources, they're very dependable. I mean, you, you're getting really good stuff. The guy is using, the guy or a lady is using things that are that he's using primary sources and he's somebody who is steeped in the period that he is talking about, he or she again. So probably you're going to get, in some ways, you'll get more from just primary sources because you're getting some additional interpretation. Some secondary sources are far less reliable. Either they're not rigorously researched or the person doesn't bring uh, a lot of knowledge about the area that he's trying to work in. 
and they can be very untrustworthy. And, and I mean, the, the worst, of course, are secondary sources that don't have any citations, so you don't know where the person is getting this. Thankfully, Rick Porter didn't have to travel far from Rutgers to examine the primary documents of Raritan Landing. The research for Raritan Landing was conducted in a few different places. The primary important places was the Middlesex County Courthouse, because that is where deeds, surrogates records are held. And so that was a very important place. Another was the Rutgers Special Collections at Alexander Library. Another very important place was the New Jersey State Archives. They have records in general that are older. County courthouses, the stuff runs out generally in the, uh, the early 19th century. Also, there are mortgages, which are also very valuable, and they do tend to go a little further back than the deeds. I guess it was because it was money, and uh, you know the guys who's uh, giving the mortgage wants to make sure it's recorded so he can get his money back. So, so yeah, the archives is some place where you could get you could push your title runs back further a lot of times. One of the most important primary documents are deeds. First of all, they tell you the owner of the property. That's kind of a bottom line. However, you can use them to define a property. So I'm going to use the example of my house. The first thing you look at, I live in Hopewell in Mercer County. And the first thing you look at is the maps. And there is an 1875 map for, I know it's a late 19th century house, for Hopewell Borough. Our house, my house, is not on that map. So, okay, we're post-1875. You run the titles. So I ran the titles and found that the house was purchased in 1879. Two things tell me there's nothing on that property. Number one, the consideration, how much it cost. I don't remember exactly, but it's probably 100 or $200. There's obviously no improvements on that property. It's just dirt. Secondarily, it was dirt that was in agricultural use because the seller reserved the right to harvest her, can't remember if it was grain or corn, from the property prior to any actions by the new owner. So there's nothing there. It's, there is no improvement on the property. Census, 1880. I now know the owner, so I have a name to run in the census. And in 1880... He is living in Hopewell Borough. I can tell from the adjacent landowners that he's living in that house. So that informs me that the house was built 1879-1880. Secondary sources. Someone uh, was hypothesizing that the house was built circa 1890. Based on it stylistically, you know, what the architecture tells you, that's a perfectly reasonable um, assumption to make or interpretation. So the titles have told us exactly when it was built, and circa 1890 is wrong. This was done in a survey that was done of Hopewell in the 80s, the 1980s, and the person who made that uh, interpretation was me. So that secondary source was off. It was me you know, looking at the architecture and doing the best I could do for a circuit date. And it was wrong because ran the titles and 1879 to 80. We did not do detailed primary research for that survey in the mid-18th century. 
researching Raritan Landing was part of phase one of an archaeological investigation. The job in phase one is just identification, presence or absence. And often that needs to be done relatively quickly for a range of reasons. So it, it is not required for phase one that you do primary research. But if you identify something like happened at, obviously, at Raritan Landing, you go on to phase two. The job at phase two is to determine whether those things that you found, the archaeological resources that you have identified as being present, are they of significant of a significance that would warrant their inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places. When you're doing that level of work, you are supposed to do primary documentation. It's important to assist in the determination relative to eligibility. In addition to the information collected by Richard Porter, Dr. Grossman and his Razo team had to dig, then determine if the archaeological site was eligible for the National Register and try to find the boundary of the community. But first things first, they had to dig. But there was an issue. It was February. The ground was frozen solid. Rebecca Yeaman remembered two hand-powered augers were used, but they broke. Then a backhoe was used to hopefully cut through the frozen surface. The attempts to find the buried community of Raritan Landing had begun. Did some initial field survey. I had hired a backhoe and... Because people had put shovels in the ground, I believe this is the story, and we hit shale about nine inches down, we needed something strong to cut through the rock to see if there's anything below it. So I contracted the construction company to weld diamond tips, teeth, onto the blades of the backhoe and while I was in the office one day, they cut into the topsoil, and then they cut into the underlying shale fill, rock fill, which we had gotten a clue about from an old lady living in a trailer up the river. And she said, oh, yeah, the shale fill. I remember they put that down in the 1930s when they cut the Rutgers football stadium. A groundskeeper from Rutgers University walked over to the excavation site and recognized it from when excavation for the football stadium began. The excavation site was a stone's throw from the Rutgers football stadium. When construction began on the stadium, shale was dug up, then dumped on top of the supposed remains of Raritan Landing. The first football stadium for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights was completed during the late 1930s. So the shale fill was backfill dumped along the river over the settlement, the buried settlement, uh, which got to be six feet deep of historic layers and gravel and mud silt and flood silts and layers of pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary occupation. Six trenches were made. After the backhoe dug one of the trenches, Dr. Joel Grossman was called at his office, but he informed his crew to contact him on a new kind of technology he was testing called a cellular phone. That was a big deal. A headset looked like an old telephone. 
with uh, a mouthpiece and an earphone that you held between your hands. And that was connected to the battery and the power unit, which was about nine inches by six inches. And it had a clip, so the headphone clipped onto the battery base. And it worked like a regular telephone. It was on this phone that Dr. Grossman was informed about a major development. I was in the office, I remember that, and I got a call on my new cell phone I had just installed the first generation of cell phones at Rare Landing for my field crew. And it was a battery-powered device and a big, funky battery. And uh, so they were able to call me Remember, this is 1978, and say, you better get down there. So I went down there, and they had cut the first of one, five backhoe cuts up and down landing, landing lane at the corner of uh, River Road and landing lane. Backhoe number one upriver came up with 1,600 artifacts, beautiful, a 1,000 pieces of ceramics, I believe, and glass and pottery, and pipes. And they came up with silver cufflinks. Dr. Joel Grossman and his team had rediscovered Raritan Landing. The first cut cut into the foundation of a pre-revolutionary building that showed us the two walls of uh, a building and a unique construction where they built the walls on cobble ball bearings so that they would fluctuate with flood silts and floodwaters coming over the riverbank. And... So that the actual building construction, like buildings in San Francisco built to withstand uh, earthquakes, these were withstanding floods, and they had a unique construction, which was kind of interesting. One of the earliest and important finds was the Builder's Trench, Dr. Grossman. The Builder's Trench... When you build a wall, you build a trench that you stand in so you can construct the foundation. And that's called the builder's trench. When you're finished building, you fill it in with debris from contemporary rubble, datable artifacts, glass, pottery, coins, things that can be dated, pipes. That's how we date a building trench or the builder's trench, the date after which the construction uh, began. Dr. Grossman was fortunate to witness colonial artifacts being dug up. We stood in a freezing cold for the backhoe to come up, and we didn't know it right away because every, all the dirt had to be screened through quarter-inch mesh. And so we had to screen the dirt in the backhoe before we knew what was in it. And boom, one of the first things that came up was a beautiful yellow 
tin glazed earthenware plate from England, or how, we don't know, it's hard to tell in that early period. And also, the most exotic thing was a set of gentlemen's cufflinks, perfectly preserved silver cufflinks in the dirt. That I never forgot. Keep in mind, this excavation began before the ground had thawed. There was one reason the excavation was initiated during the coldest month of winter. Money, big money. Delays were costing the county hundreds of thousands of dollars because the construction was stopped. And so there were huge financial pressures to either discredit what I had argued that it was important or to go ahead and treat it as an important archaeological discovery. And there were those who argued that it was not important. Some archaeologists were brought in from Colonial Williamsburg, and he argued that the discovery and my arguments about landing were not significant. And uh, the government, the U.S. EPA and the Department of Interior, didn't give him a lot of support and supported the argument that landing was an important discovery. Up to this point, research was conducted to map the possible properties of the inhabitants of Raritan Landing. Backhoes were required to dig into the frozen ground to comply with federal regulations because this was a federal construction project. Because of the artifacts discovered at the site, the area was eligible to be placed on the National Register of Historic Places. This was all good news, but Dr. Grossman and the Razo team were just getting started. The next goal was to establish how big the settlement was, and that was a separate set of challenges and questions. This was an enormous challenge. Dr. Grossman and the Razo team were required to conduct further investigation of the supposed Raritan Landing buried community. His assignment dictated by federal regulations that protected the artifacts, was to find the boundaries of the buried remains. But how could he do that in the middle of winter when the ground was frozen solid? Normally, archaeologists conducted shovel tests. The field crew used shovels to dig into the ground, emptied the dirt into a metal sieve. After the sieve was shaken free of the dirt, the crew was required to examine what remained, whatever it was, artifacts, tree roots, whatever remained. However, the Razo team couldn't use shovels. Again, the ground was solid. Furthermore, they couldn't continue to use a backhoe. They could potentially damage the history buried underneath historic structures and or historic artifacts. Dr. Grossman was under an immense amount of pressure. He needed a non-invasive tool or method that searched underneath the ground that helped him determine where to dig, where not to dig, and where the 18th century town of Raritan Landing started and where it ended. Dr. Grossman came up with a solution, ground-penetrating radar. The radar was part of a federally mandated need to define the boundaries of the site. We had property lines, but that they were skimpy compared to what the fact that 
archaeologists were finding artifacts all over the place. The traditional techniques of putting a lot of holes in the ground, which are destructive, uh, testing, excavation, many, many holes, would be destructive because archaeology is, by definition, destructive. And so we needed a technique to define the extent and boundaries of the buried settlement in a way that was not destructive and could be done quickly and would get the project back on schedule. So that was a mandate because the agencies involved, the state of New Jersey, the DEP, uh, and the federal government, the U.S. EPA, had the obligation of requiring that the archaeologists come up with a national register evaluation of the site. That is, was it eligible for inclusion in a national register? To do a national register nomination, however, you have to have the boundaries of the site. And since this site was buried, we had a problem. So I decided that we should try something new that supposedly would be able to see through the rock and suggested ground-penetrating radar be used and rare landing. Dr. Grossman was first exposed to radar while he was a graduate student at Berkeley. I was mapping, I was studying Peruvian Andean pre-Inca archaeology in the southern Andes of Peru, and I was interested in the trade patterns of the pre-Inca people. So we were using trace elements of historic trace elements in the pottery to try and reconstruct their trade routes in ancient Peru. It was more complex than we thought, but it got me in touch with people at the Jet Proposal Laboratory. And they had pictures of the first overflight of radar in the space shuttle dating to the mid-70s. And they had pictures of North Africa that were in to the naked eye or to any photographic medium were simply sand. But when you looked at it through the sand with the radar, you saw rivers and valleys and streams and confluences. And he showed me these rivers in the desert. And that reminded me of a story that when I was a boy, and I was reading my first book of archaeology that I read was called Rivers in the Desert. And that book talked about using the Old Testament to map buried settlements in North Africa. That used uh, the biblical sources, but showed that there were things buried under the sand. So given that incentive as a young person, and the radar pictures that the Jet Propulsion Laboratory introduced me to, I decided that it would be a good idea to try radar at rare landing. In order to learn more about radar, he decided to enlist the help of the United States Army. So I went to the Army and I said, who's working on radar? He said, well, we're working on radar. We're working on calibrating the F-16 radar with mosquitoes. 
if you can see a mosquito from mosquitoes in a swarm, you shouldn't be able to see the bad guys. Well, so I said, please introduce me to these people. And I was introduced to a gentleman named Emerson Frost, a little guy with an engineering clip in his shirt pocket and a brown paper bag for lunch all the time. And he was the Army's leading radar expert. So I wanted to know how they were interpreting the radar data since they were so sharp and everything. And he said, well, we don't really know. We're starting to put pins in styrofoam boards. I said, what? You're putting pins in styrofoam boards? Yeah. The deeper the radar, the deeper the pin. I said, well, I can't present that to a federal agency. I can't say, all right, the deepest pin is the radar signal. I need a better way of doing that. In addition to ground-penetrating radar, he also experimented with other technologies. I always covered my bets. I never did one thing with just one technology, but used overlapping technologies. We decided... Tried other things beside radar before the radar, geophysical systems using magnetometers or magnetics. They didn't work because we were too close to the road and to all the traffic uh, that interfered with the signals. So that magnetometer was ruled out. A magnetometer measures magnetic differences in the ground. For example, a magnetometer will detect buried bricks. Why are bricks magnetic? Because when they are fired, the iron particles in the bricks become fluid and go boom, 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 and shake all around in many different directions. When the brick thaws or uh, cools down, not thaws, when the brick cools down, the iron particles align with magnetic north at the moment that it cools. And magnetic north is constantly changing because the North Pole keeps changing. So the magnetometer picks up differences between magnetic pole and objects in the ground. And it is an instrument, an electrical instrument, that carries, that measures electron particles going through a solution which picks up ionized activity. Unfortunately, Grossman couldn't, as he said, cover his bets. He focused on using ground-penetrating radar, or GPR. How is it being utilized? In fact, the first use of radar was in 1938 by a guy named Stern in Austria. And he used radar to map the thickness of the Austrian glaciers. And he shot an antenna into the ice looking downwards. And a second antenna measured the echo, an electronic echo, some distance away. I don't know how far away he put his second receiver. And he was able to estimate the depth and rate of penetration. He knew the rate of penetration. So he was able to to compute the depth of the ice. That was the first use of ground-penetrating radar in the world. According to Grossman's writings, 
GPR had also been used to detect ice-filled cavities in the permafrost during the construction of the Alaskan pipeline, also to detect unmapped utility lines and pipes in urban construction projects, even by oil companies to determine if Arctic ice sheets were thick enough to support heavy drilling rigs. Prior to being used to detect the extent of Raritan Landing, ground-penetrating radar, or GPR, was used to detect the location and depth of a buried historic wall in Philadelphia. It was also used by Roger Vickers of the Stanford Research Center in conjunction with the Remote Sensing Division of the National Park Service to locate Pueblo buildings buried up to 13 feet in New Mexico. GPR works like sonar in a submarine. The GPR unit was encased in plywood. The user pulled or pushed it, like the handle of a lawnmower, over the ground. The antenna within the wooden box sent a signal capable of sending radar pulses in a billionth of a second that penetrated the soil and shale between 5 inches and 5 feet. GPR was unable to detect smaller objects like a coin, but was capable of detecting larger objects, such as a buried historic feature, a building foundation, for example. While Dr. Grossman was fairly confident GPR would be a big help, he knew he needed assistance. He hired Bruce Bevan, who suggested using GPR unit from a company called Geophysical Survey Systems. The radar survey of Raritan Landing took 11 days. The operators of the GPR unit were assisted by archaeologists of the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office, who directed where to push the unit. Another scientist that I invited to help out, named Bruce Bevan, measured the depth of penetration and was able to say we were seeing through the rock into the underlying deposits, historic deposits. We were seeing 3.8 feet into and through the rock. That's all I needed to know. And then I recommended a full-blown survey of about 400 feet by about 300 feet on the up uh, northern western side of where it landing. And uh, that's when we hit the settlement. Dr. Grossman did it. Using GPR, a non-invasive technology, he completed another step. He found the boundary of the buried community of Raritan Landing. We knew that we were getting through the radar was seeing through the shale fill and seeing layers of material below the shale fill that we knew from the backhoe cut was historic uh, architectural and archaeological material. Okay, so the radar was done in the early spring and it gooded off 500-foot strip along Landing Lane I gritted it off at five-foot intervals and drug the antenna across the ground every five feet in both north-south, east-west directions. In addition to GPR, Dr. Grossman used something called resistivity to assist in finding the buried settlement. Because the radar worked, one of the ways we calibrate the radar penetration is with resistivity measurements. And resistivity are simple. Radar sends out a signal, electrical radio wave, 
into the ground, just like a ship sends out sonar signals. And when it hits an object, it creates a wavelet like a sonar cone heading downward, a series of superimposed cones. And the radar looks like either a series of superimposed cones or as it echoes as horizontal bands over reflecting surfaces. The next step was to interpret the data collected by the ground-penetrating radar unit, another difficult task. The key to understanding how GPR is interpreted and, and read has to do with the production of the output of a map, of making a map. And we didn't know how to do that when we first did the radar in 1978, nobody had made a radar map per se. They had radar pictures, but they didn't have a radar map of multiple profiles in both directions, east, west, north, south, across hundreds of square feet of the buried settlement to get a map underground of what it would be. The results of the survey were printed on grid paper, Dr. Grossman decided that he needed to develop a way not only to read the results, but be able to interpret the results to the federal agencies and the engineering firm that was supervising the construction of the sewer pipe. He came up with a six-color system. Then he instructed Richard Porter, the project historian, to fly to New Hampshire to apply the six colors to the historic properties he researched using primary documents. The radar map was the first example of a color-coded underground radar map of a buried city. And so it created quite a stir of interest uh, in the archaeology community and was presented at a number of scientific conferences, including the OAS and UNESCO conferences uh, in Peru and Ecuador. It was widely received as a key example of innovation in archaeology. And the work that was done by the Rutgers students was because of they really applied new techniques and new methods to all problems with great success. Remember, in order to complete the nomination for the Raritan Landing Archaeological District, the site had to be properly mapped out, but paper maps were inadequate. And I couldn't provide boundaries using paper maps, deeds, and deed searches alone. So the only way to get proper boundaries and internal composition was with ground-penetrating radar. It gave us a practical solution to archaeologists working in difficult and emergency situations. In the end, the radar map was the key to the development of the mitigation plan, which was presented to the New Jersey Department of Transportation, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the agency in charge, and the engineering firm responsible for the construction of the sewer line. Okay, the radar played a key archaeological role in the mitigation plan. The mitigation plan was the end product of the interagency negotiations. 
the mitigation plan was what was ultimately delivered by the county to the state, who then delivered it to the feds, who then delivered it to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. And when they showed up, they showed up in very slick three-piece suits. The master plan or the mitigation plan, that was the end product. That was the mitigation of the destruction of the reduced corridor through the site. They were initially going to plow a 40-foot-wide trench through the colonial site for 300 feet. And I said, can they reduce the width of the trench to 15 feet, almost three quarters. And they did, which was a gargantuan feat. So they put sheeting in all along a trench and dug inside that 15-foot wall and then laid the huge pipes uh, in the trenches after, after the excavation was finished. But the master plan, the mitigation plan, was two parts. One, what was the archaeology doing? It defined the site, and it defined an excavation strategy to sample the site. We had to negotiate how much I was going to excavate. Then there was the engineering side, and that was the redesign of the construction to reduce the impacts to the site from 40 feet to 15 feet. So it became a much smaller excavation with simply the stroke of a pen and the redesign of the excavation corridor. That was the mitigation plan that had to be presented to the advisory council as the final solution. Dr. Joel Grossman and the Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office had completed another step. He was hired by the United States Environmental Protection Agency to develop a mitigation plan that saved history. In this case, the buried remains of a lost port community of Raritan Landing. The project historian had researched the town using a wide variety of primary documents. The Rutgers Archaeological Survey Office had discovered 1,600 18th century artifacts using a backhoe in the bone-chilling cold. Ground-penetrating radar had provided Dr. Grossman and the federal government with a readable map that indicated the boundaries of the Raritan Landing Historic District, eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. The next step was to dig, which we'll cover in a later episode. Next up, we hear from three experts who educate us about the Lenape, the first people to inhabit New Jersey before it was known as New Jersey. Thank you for listening to Uncovering Raritan Landing. I'm Douglas Almack. Uncovering Raritan Landing is produced by me and Mitchell Kevitt, who is also our technical advisor. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Middlesex County Board of County Commissioners. This podcast is dedicated to County Commissioner Kenneth Armwood, who encouraged us to do something no one has ever done before. Special thanks to Dr. Joel Grossman. Uncovering Raritan Landing is written by me, Douglas Ormack, Mitchell Kevitt, Colin Doherty, and Emma Young. Edited and sound mixed by me. Our theme song is Fun Time by Alexander Mistrovsky.